following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. As we prepare our hearts for the confession of sin, hear these words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Sleeper awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And now a reading from 1 Samuel 16, 1-13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. Thank you, Melody. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
We all love that idea, don't we? The idea that the, uh, the big, tall, beautiful people like David's brothers who are loved so easily by the world are not necessarily the ones that God will choose to do great things. Uh, this is the plot of basically every sports movie. Right? Rudy. Right? And it is March Madness time, and we all love a good upset, don't we? I don't think I've ever seen Facebook as happy as when Duke lost in the second round of the tournament this year. Uh, but you don't actually have to be a sports nut to get behind this idea. Um, we all hold out hope that the underdog will prevail. And we'll win out in the end. It could be sports, could be politics, could be business, could be romance. Whatever your idea is that you like to think about, whatever types of stories you enjoy. We love the drama of the underdog coming out on top in the end. And I think one reason that we all love the underdog story is that we see ourselves as the underdog, even sometimes when we're not. But we like to think of ourselves as overcoming great odds and showing it to all those people who didn't believe in us, don't we? We think of ourselves as the good kid with the heart of gold who's been overlooked and passed by and by golly we're going to make the team and make the winning shot. Or fill in your example from your preferred type of story. And so when we read those words from for Samuel, God doesn't see as mortals see. God doesn't look at people the way people look at people. They look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. We usually find great comfort and hope in that. That statement is meant to reassure us. When it comes to how we are judged in the world, we see usually a great disparity between how the rest of the world thinks of us and how we think of ourselves. Like we think what we know to be true of ourselves is the real truth. And what other people think of us is not the real truth. And that's because generally speaking, and if you, if you really look at yourself honestly, I think you'll find that this is true. We tend to assume the worst about other people, especially people we already don't like. Meanwhile, assuming the best about ourselves, especially when it comes to the area of um, whether someone's intentions are good or bad. We usually assume that other people's intentions are bad, and that our intentions are pure as the driven snow. And so today, I want to take us on a little bit of a meditative exploration around the idea of judgment, how others judge us, how we judge ourselves, how we judge others. And to do that, we'll use as our guide the four passages from the lectionary, which are assigned to us today, this fourth Sunday in Lent. And by the way, if you haven't been using the lectionary for your own Bible reading, I encourage you to do that, especially during this season. There's a few more weeks left where this will work in your favor because we look at these texts every Sunday and they're assigned years and years and years and years ago. Okay? So you can find them if you just look for the lectionary online. You'll see which texts we're using every week and you can prepare for Sundays by reading those texts ahead of time. I encourage you to do that. So in the Hebrew Bible reading, which we would call as Christians the Old Testament the uh, story of the anointing of David might offer us a sense of reassurance and encouragement about how other people may be judging us unfairly based on metrics that are not the right ones. 
Next, I'd like to look at the gospel reading, which comes from John chapter 9, and see if this might offer us a chance to think about how we judge other people and whether our judgments of them are any fairer of people's judgments of us. So it's going to be John chapter 9. Uh, It's a rather long passage. I'm not going to read all 41 verses, but please read them on your own. This is a really great story in the Bible. It includes probably my favorite Bible character, who's this man who's, uh, who's been born blind and and Jesus restores his sight or gives him his sight and I like this guy because um, people get all up in his business about this and keep bugging him and he becomes very sarcastic and uh, he's uh, sarcasm is my spiritual gift so I really he's a man after my own heart so we're going to dig into this story really uh, in a minute but I briefly want to say something about it which is uh, a rabbit trail but one which I think is important and that is that uh, since Artisan has been walking closely with uh, the disability community over the last few years, I have come to look at passages like this one a little bit differently. And part of the reason is because our friends with disabilities tend to look at these stories of healing, and sometimes they can be very difficult to process for them. I think that that is because of the way that religious people, people in churches, have treated those with disabilities and they have that, all that noise in the background, and then they come to a story of healing of a disability in the scriptures, and uh, it's very hard to, to accept it as good. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, I'll tell a brief story to, to explain it. We had a, a panel discussion a few years ago, including some people who had disabilities. And one of the people, uh, after the service, said to me, I'm so thankful that I was here today. I've been in lots of churches over the years, and this is the first time I've ever been to church, and nobody offered to pray for me to heal me of my disability. Unprompted, unrequested. And I, didn't, I don't want people to do that because I love myself the way I am. I don't think there's anything wrong with me or my body. And so when, when a religious person comes and unprompted asks if they can pray for my healing... I see that as uh, an indication that they think I am less valuable than I actually am because of who I am. Have you, does that make sense? That would never have occurred to me, I'm sorry to say, if that person hadn't told me that. And so uh, I've talked to others in the disability community and they all say the same thing. Religious people just want to pray for me and heal me to change the way I am. And I don't think I need healing. I like myself. I'm good. And so with that noise in their ears and in their minds and in their hearts, they come to a story like this, where there's a man with a disability and Jesus heals him. And what do they hear in that? What do they see in that? What, what appears to, to be going on there is the same kind of um, aggressive uh, spiritual intervention, unasked for, unprompted. Does that, do you see how that could be true? And so I've come to read these stories a little bit differently. Now, in this case, um, the man seems quite happy with what happened, and so we'll take him at his word. Um, And the other thing I would say about it, and this is sometimes helpful for friends with disabilities, although not always, is that um, in in, uh, an ancient Near Eastern culture like this, being blind meant you were consigned to a life of utter poverty and um, begging for food, right? And we have a long way to go with how we care for people with disabilities in our culture even today, but it's not like that, uh, particularly not for blind people. Um, and so Jesus was not only healing something with this man's body, but 
in healing him was actually making it possible for him to become part of the broader community, uh, to, to simply live his life as all the others around him could live their lives, but he couldn't because he was blind. So there's more than just a physical healing going on there. There's a restoration to community, which is um, something that, that um, can be helpful. But let me encourage all of you, as you read these stories, to think about our friends who have disabilities and how they might read them. And definitely, please let this change the way you speak to them in the context of your religious faith. Fair enough? Okay. So let's read this. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. And again, read the rest of them on your own. As I read it, I want you to ask yourself, which character in this story do I most closely identify with? This is a very helpful exercise for you to go deeper with Scripture, put yourself in the story, and think to yourself, which one of these people is most like me, or am I most like? And um, Luke 9 won't work for us. I need John 9. There we go. As he walked along, he saw a man, Jesus saw a man, blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. So let me ask you the question, which character in that story do you most closely identify with? Which one do you think you're most like? I already told you that I'm kind of like the man who received sight and then um, became sarcastic. That part comes later in the story. That's why I tell you you have to read it. Um, you, you begin to see it there because they're all talking about him without him, <laughs> right? Uh, and then suddenly they, they come to him and he's like, no, I'm actually the guy. I don't know where Jesus is. Anyway, it goes on from there. So I, I tend to identify with him in this story. Maybe you do. Maybe uh, in some manner you have been unexpectedly blessed by God and then questioned by religious people right? or have had any kind of experience with God and then had religious people question whether it was authentic or whether you made the whole thing up or something like that, whether you're good enough to have had that experience. Maybe you're like the disciples who are trying to figure out who's at fault the sin in the world. This is a very common question. Um, anytime anything went wrong, they thought somebody must be to blame. And Jesus says, no, that's not how the world works. Not everything that goes wrong is because somebody sinned. But now let's see what God can do in this situation. So maybe you're like the disciples. You're trying to figure out who's at fault because of all the sin you see in the world. 
Maybe if you know that as the story goes on, the Pharisees, the religious authorities, the experts in the law come in and they start to complain and they they want to police who is in and who is out of the religious community and they want to um, interpret the law very strictly and say this healing shouldn't have happened anyway because it's a Sabbath, that sort of thing. Maybe Maybe you have a little bit of a Pharisee in you. Maybe you're like the neighbors. Did you catch the neighbors in this story? If you blinked, you missed them. The neighbors are the ones who are kind of watching it from afar, and they're, they're a little bit puzzled, trying to figure out what's going on. What are these weirdos doing? <laughs> right? we, we always have one or two people at Artisan who are observing from afar, wondering what all these weirdos are doing. <laughs> so if that's you, welcome. I'm glad you're here. But uh, if we're being honest, we've probably all played all of these roles at one time or another in our life, haven't we? So I want you to do, I'd like us to think specifically for a moment about what it's like to be the disciples in the story. They came right out of the gate. The guy was minding his own business, and they stopped and said, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I don't know that we would necessarily ask this question exactly the way they asked it, although it would probably be good to ask somebody who's actually blind and been to church and seen whether that question came up, because it's, given what I said earlier, it's possible. But whether or not we've asked the question exactly that way, I think we've all asked a version of the question, the version of the question that goes something like this. Whose sin is responsible for the evil that we see in the world? Think on that for a minute. Have you ever asked that question? If you drill down and take some of the niceness out of that question, you get to the question, whose fault is this? Or if you want to strip out even more of the niceness, you get to the question, who is to blame for this? And then if you want to get to the real root of the question, it's actually, who can I blame for this? Who can I blame for the problems that I see around me, whether they affect me directly or affect somebody I love? Who can I blame for the problems in the world? Whoever it is who's at fault, tell me, because I want to hunt them down and yell at them or punish them or have them arrested or kill them. You can see how this question can be inflated from our personal situations out to a global level. Who is to blame. Who is at fault for all the bad things I see in the world? Must be somebody, because there's always a reason, right? That's the thing that you hear. Remember, Jesus says no, but that's the thing that you hear. So maybe take a minute, I'll give you a few seconds of silence, to think about times when you have just been desperate to find someone to blame for the problem that you observe. So the next text that I want to turn to from the lectionary readings for today is from Ephesians 5. I read it earlier in the service at the confession. And this passage um, gives us what might be a, a more painful and difficult thought experiment that we could engage in. So let's take a look at this one. 
This is Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So one thing that you might have noticed in all these readings is a recurring theme of darkness and of light, of what is seen and what is unseen. In the Samuel passage, we uh, get the reminder that we don't see the whole picture, that God sees a truth in people that we do not see when we look superficially. The reading from John's Gospel shows us in the picture of a blind man who comes to be able to see that even the people who can see around him don't have insight. They may be able to see with their eyes, but they can't see with their hearts. And if you go on in the story, you see Jesus takes them down that road and says, you are the ones who have the problem, not this man. And this Ephesians passage that I've just read comes right out and says it. Some people are darkness, other people are light. You know, I had it in my notes that says some people walk in darkness and some people walk in the light because I thought that's what it said. But actually it just says much more starkly than that. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. It leads us to ask some really difficult questions of ourselves. Questions which I will now pose to you and ask you to reflect on. When the the text says, live as children of light, what are some ways that you have failed to do that? What have what ways have you failed to live as a child of the light? It goes on to say, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Let's lift those three words up. Works of darkness. That sounds like a death metal album or something. but maybe take it a little bit more seriously than that. What works of darkness are you engaging in, even now in your life? Can you answer that question in your heart? And then it says, for it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. Think about the secrets that you carry with you. What are the things that nobody knows about except you? What are the shameful secrets that you carry? And can you uncover them long enough to admit that they're there, just between you and God even?
you start asking yourself questions like this, and more importantly, when you start answering them honestly, because sometimes, let's be honest, we do these little meditative exercises and we think, oh, I asked the question. That's probably good. When's brunch? Right? But when you start to answer the questions and answer them honestly, you may begin to wonder if you've gotten yourself all wrong. Maybe you are not the gold-hearted underdog you always believed yourself to be. Maybe you're not actually better and more holy than the whole world around you that you see sinning wantonly. Maybe some of the problems that you see in the world, in your life, maybe some of them, in some way, can be laid at your own feet. Maybe the idea that God looks not on the outward appearances, but on the heart, which was so encouraging 20 minutes ago, maybe that idea now is more of a condemnation. Because what you've done is construct an appearance that keeps you safe, that helps you pass. And if anybody knew the actual truth, you'd be in trouble. Maybe, maybe if there is a line between heaven and hell, between purity and depravity, between honesty and deception, between good and evil, maybe if that line is actually there, maybe you're on the wrong side of it. Maybe you are only now noticing that what you thought was a whole beautiful world filled with light is actually a prison cell where you bring held in darkness. At our call to worship, we read from Psalm 23. As I said at the time, it's one of the, one of the most common and famous passages of Scripture in the whole world. And some of you have heard All of you have heard at least the part that says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And maybe your brain switches to the King James English and you go on, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. I was prompted this week, uh, I, I felt by the Spirit, to meditate on the idea of a green pasture. I don't know if it's just like the end of March and I needed some sunshine and I had to imagine it into my, my prayer office but, uh, or what, but I, I sat and thought about what it would be like to be with God in a green pasture for a good period of minutes. Um, there's so much beauty in this, in the early part of this psalm, and then it turns dark. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, of, of the valley of the shadow of death. Right? Our translation says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I think that's not quite as ominous as the King James. But have you ever noticed this? Have I ever told you this about how the, the there's a linguistic turn in the middle of this psalm that indicates to me that God is actually closest to us when the world is the darkest. You see what happens? The, the psalm starts out speaking of the Lord as a, as a he, right? Um, God is over there when you say he. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. Who? He, that guy over there. And then when it gets to the, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of, the de- of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Do you see how that's a, that pronoun is a closer relationship? He makes me lie down in green pastures. When I'm walking through the darkest valley, you are with me. It's basically that footprints thing. <laughs> you, ever, you know the footprints thing, right? Where there's two walking with God on the beach and then it gets really bad and there's only one set of footprints and he complains and he says, that's when I carried you. Does it, or is it ringing a bell with anybody? We had the footprints thing on, uh, it was the weirdest thing. It was like a log that had been cut into a cross section like an inch thick and then lacquered over with the words of this footprints poem on it and it sat on our baby grand piano in our, our living room my whole life growing up. Uh, I don't know why I remembered that, but... <laughs> Footprints is basically Psalm 23, but less poetic. (laughs) No offense if you like the footprints thing, but I'm going to stick with the psalmist. Um, But the principle there is this. When things are darkest, that's when God is closest. Even though, ironically, the darkness may make us feel that God is actually very distant. And so, all of this talk this morning about shameful secrets and works of darkness and being honest with yourself and maybe you're not as great as you thought you are or were, that's all necessary. But not because the goal of religion or faith is to, to press you down and tell you how awful you are. In fact, it's the opposite. It's to remind you that God wants to lift you up. And then in that darkness, in that shame, is where God wants to meet you. Do you remember that Ephesians text? You were darkness. That's, that was what your identity was. Now, in the Lord, you are light. Your identity is light. And so, we, just as the, the church in Ephesus, all hold these things in the secrets of our heart. And, and we don't want to turn the light switch on in the room because we don't want the truth of us, of, of who we are, to be exposed. But what he says is that everything exposed by the light becomes visible. Everything that's visible is light. So your identity as a child of God is defined by this act of confession and release and admitting and accepting all the ways that you are not good enough. Because when you turn the light on and shine the light, allow God to shine his light on your darkest places, that's when his grace kicks in. And that's when redemption starts to take root in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, in your life. As long as you keep the lights off and try to hold on to everything and keep it your own shameful secret, it will remain darkness. We are called to be children of light. That's why the season of Lent calls us to confession. We started off the season of Lent with a talk on confession as the path to forgiveness and redemption and salvation. So God is closest to us when the darkness is the deepest. And what you need to do is turn to him and face the light. Let's pray together.
God of light, we, uh, we have confessed our sins to you and yet held on to some of them. We don't seem to have the courage to be completely honest with you or ourselves, let alone with those around us. And yet we read and hear this teaching that it is the, the visibility that places us into your light and takes us out of that dark place. And so we pray that you would give us courage under the conviction of your Holy Spirit to confess our sins, to admit them, to step out into the light with the fullness of who we are, trusting that you love us in spite of our shortcomings. May we walk this enlightened path together with your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. It is always my joy and privilege to invite you to come and receive the body and blood of the Savior, to come to the table of the Lord, to take communion. If you are doubting this morning, I guess it's afternoon now, if you are doubting today what God's opinion of you is, let me reassure you that his primary and eternal and all-encompassing posture toward you is one of love and invitation. Love to the point of death. And it is his death, the death of the Savior that we remember and indeed celebrate at communion. And so if you're seeking to follow him, to go in the way of Jesus along with us, um, come and receive the sacrament. It is for all who wish to follow Jesus in this place on this day. You don't have to be a member here or anything like that. Come and receive the bread, remembering his body which was broken for you. Dip it in the wine or the juice, whichever would be more appropriate for you and your family. Remember the blood which was shed for the forgiveness of your sins and all of our sins. Take that as food for your souls. Receive God into yourself. And may it be the body and blood of the Savior and an act of unity with each other and with Christians around the world and throughout history who have observed this same beautiful sacrament. If you'd like to receive personalized prayer, there's a member of the prayer team at the back corner of the room who'd be happy to pray with you. And if you uh, are not a Christian, if you are not following Jesus and you just kind of want to sit and observe, that's always okay here too. Nobody will look at you funny. But please don't let your own sense of shortcoming stop you from coming to this place because this is the place where your brokenness and your shortcomings are precisely the prerequisite. They are just what God wants. And so our table's open. I invite you to come as we sing uh, some more songs together. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.